in a therapeutic worldview, sin means dysfunction. And there is no objective standard to tell me what sin is in the first place. In a therapeutic worldview, everything is in me. It's all indoors. All my authority, all my beliefs, everything that I talk about is about me and my insides. You don't really have to deny Christianity in a therapeutic worldview. It just doesn't really matter. It's just not in the picture to talk about justification. Throughout this month, we're airing a series of conference addresses that Michael Horton recently gave on the doctrine of justification. And if you'd like to get a copy of these messages, we're making them available to you for a gift of any amount. This special offer also features bonus material not aired on the program throughout this series. For more information or to make your donation, simply head to whitehorsesin.org slash justification. That's whitehorsesin.org slash justification. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. A controversial doctrine today, we've looked at how justification was controversial in the past. The same is true of us today, really even in relation to Protestantism. According to many studies, most Protestants, even most evangelicals, believe that we're justified by a combination of Christ's righteousness and our own works. It's just that stark. Now, if you ask it in sort of the right way, where people have been attuned perhaps to responding with slogans, then you might get a better answer. But if you ask people, as some of the studies do, if you ask people outright, do you think that you can be right with God only on the basis of what Christ has done for you? It's surprising what kind of statistics you get. The Pew Research Group conducted a study 500 years after the Reformation, 2017. In a majority of U.S. Protestants, according to the study, 52% say both good deeds and faith in God are needed to get into heaven. Now, that is stated in such a way where you would think a lot of people who kind of confuse the law and the gospel would nevertheless get that right and say, no, that's not a way of putting it that would reflect my views. But shockingly, 52% of U.S. Protestants take that position. U.S. Protestants are also split on sola scriptura, scripture alone, whether scripture alone is the authority for faith and practice. Again, a slight majority, 52%, say that Scripture is not the sole norm for faith and practice. So here we have, on the two major points, the material and formal principles of the Reformation, a majority of U.S. Protestants as being about where the Reformers' opponents were in the 16th century. Multiple choice questions weren't very much better only 23% know that Protestants traditionally teach that salvation comes through faith alone. And 45% erroneously thought that both Protestants and Catholics teach that doctrine. By the way, Jews and Mormons did better on the test than evangelicals. In Western Europe, more generally, how many people say that salvation comes through faith alone? That's a minority view among Protestants except for Norway. And that's at 51%. In Sweden, among those who say that religion is very important in their lives, 
only 31% say that they believe in justification through faith alone. So they're Protestant, and they say religion is very important in my life. Only 31% of those say that they're justified by faith alone. 48% of Dutch adults identify as atheists, but they have the highest church attendance, 43%. Now, back at home, you might be familiar with the work of Christian Smith, and if you listen to the White Horse Inn, we talk about uh, these studies a lot because he's been watching the trends of America's young people from the time they were teenagers to the time now that they're going into their 30s. And as he's been tracking them, he's a, a sociologist who's now at Notre Dame, was at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As they age, he's finding it's the same belief system that they had when they were teenagers. And he says it's really striking how they all share the same theology across denominations and across the liberal conservative divide. So what is that? What is the basic overarching working theology in America today? And he says the best way of describing it is moralistic therapeutic deism. It's moralistic because people believe that, uh, you know, we're all good people. Religion is there to make people a little better. Sure, we do some bad things, but we're on the whole pretty good. And we go to church because we want to we become better people. And then it's therapeutic because people don't believe that God made us for his glory. Rather, God exists for our happiness. And so... Religion is a kind of therapy. Uh, we don't really think of ourselves as in a real pickle in relationship to God. We see ourselves as unhappy. And what we need is peace of mind, not peace with God, but peace of mind. And if God can give it to us, that's great. I've got a really important supporting role for God in my life movie. And if he does what the preacher told me he'll do if I become a Christian, then I'll try it. I'll give it a shot, moralistic and therapeutic, and then deism. Otherwise, God just is out of the picture, sort of like uh, the, the butler who, you know, when the, when the luggage gets heavy, he steps in to lighten your load, and then otherwise he's, he's out of the picture, just blends into the woodwork. That's how people feel about God, moralistic, therapeutic deism. In the late Middle Ages, moralism was encapsulated in that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, the medieval version of it. God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within them. And by the way, I think I mentioned this, God helps those who help themselves. 67% of evangelicals surveyed thought that was a quotation of scripture, when in fact, as you know, it's a quotation from Ben Franklin's Almanac. And so we not only need to follow the reformers in recognizing the biblical nature of justification, but the biblical priority of justification. Justification is not one doctrine among many. It's not as if it's really important for you to get down 10 or 11 things, but justification is one of those issues that we can disagree over. Uh, justification is absolutely at the core of our Christian faith. From beginning to end, Justification by Christ alone, through faith alone, is the confident joy and wellspring of the Christian life.
Uh, it's exactly what the Reformers called it, Calvin no less than Luther, the hinge on which religion turns. But within all of this, justification has been taken less seriously in churches today, even churches of the Reformation. And I guarantee you this, if the law is taken less seriously, and I don't recommend that either, if the law is taken less seriously in the church, people will still believe in it. If the gospel isn't taken seriously in the church, people will not go on believing the gospel because the law is natural to us and the gospel is foreign to us. That's why the gospel must have priority in our preaching and teaching and pastoral ministry, our fellowship. The thing that we're gossiping all the time with each other is the gospel. Doesn't mean that we don't talk about other important doctrines. But even there, the talk about the Trinity, how does the gospel lead us back to the Trinity? And everything through the prism of how does our redemption in Jesus Christ affect the way we see every aspect of our life. But then we talk about justification in a divided church, and it's a tragedy when you look around at how divided churches are. You can't really say churches are divided over the doctrine of justification. Not really, can you? I mean, I'll be really frank here. The Reformation wasn't a division over justification, really. The Reformation was a division as a result of four popes insane megalomania. All four of those popes were thoroughly corrupt, and they were fathers of the church in more ways than one. They had children everywhere, mostly as bishops or cardinals. It was a completely corrupt church. Martin Luther said, they will remember me not because I'm a great man. They will remember me not because I was like the other reformers who tried to get rid of all the corruption, but because I went to the doctrine. That is when the tiger roared. According to the current Catholic catechism, quote, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. We've seen that. We have to stop beating up on Roman Catholics until that is no longer the majority view in Protestantism. <laughs> so it's a tragedy that the church is divided, but what's a real tragedy today, too, is that Protestants, even evangelical Protestants, are divided over this doctrine. But they're not really divided over it because they think about it a lot. We're divided over many other things. We're more divided in America right now over the culture wars and who are you going to vote for. Much more divided over that. Most Christians in America care far more about the impeachment hearings than they do about any doctrine of Christianity. And so not only must doctrine be recovered as an important subject for Christians as pilgrims on the way to the real homeland, but this doctrine in particular must be recovered in a moralistic therapeutic age. Most recently, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification in 1999, including representatives from the Vatican and the Lutheran World Federation, achieved a consensus, a consensus that the article of justification is no longer church dividing. Why? Because the Lutherans now believe that justification includes 
inward moral renewal. It has never been the case in Roman Catholic Protestant dialogues that I'm familiar with, it has never been the case that Rome has ever had to move one inch. The Protestants do all the moving. Protestants love to move. (laughs) Rome doesn't and doesn't have to. In my view, the joint declaration didn't achieve the results for which many hoped. And as Eberhard Jungel, one of its critics, a great theologian in Germany, judged, quote, the understanding that allegedly has been reached rests on ground which proves at places quite slippery. By the way, on the Roman Catholic side, when the joint statement came out, all the Protestants celebrated, and about a week later, the Vatican said, well, this doesn't really represent any kind of official status in the Roman Catholic Church. We, we still stand by the Council of Trent and, and everything else. But Protestants went on believing their adjustment of the article by which the church stands or falls. The same thing happened in evangelical circles, evangelicals and Catholics together. In this document, evangelicals and Catholics said, well, we, we might differ on certain details, such as the merit of Mary and the saints, our own merits, imputation, and whether justification is a purely forensic declaration or also a moral transformation. We may differ on these issues, but we both believe and confess the gospel together. And so if I mentioned the names, they would all be household conservative evangelical names, people we respect, who signed them. That, more than anything else, any controversy I've ever been involved in, that one broke my heart and showed me that evangelicals now are as ready to surrender the doctrine as mainline Protestants. And that tells me it hasn't been an important topic in evangelical churches for a long time. You have no trouble giving up something in the attic that you've never really valued. For more than 30 years, Modern Reformation Magazine has been a trusted source for biblical insight, cultural analysis, and theological reflection. Right now, if you lock in a three-year subscription to Modern Reformation for just $20 a year, we'll send you a complimentary copy of our book, Defending the Faith, which is a collection of some of our best articles on the topic of apologetics. To get your complimentary copy of Defending the Faith, lock in your three-year subscription to Modern Reformation now by heading over to whitehorsein.org slash mrspecial. That's whitehorseinorg slash mrspecial. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn as we're presenting a special conference address by Michael Horton titled, Why Justification is So Controversial. Following the Enlightenment, mainline Protestantism became essentially Socinian. That is the heresy that denies the deity of Christ and exchanges the gospel for Pelagian moralism. Mainline Protestant denominations increasingly went in that direction. For centuries now, at least in mainline Protestant theology, the doctrine of justification has been largely assimilated to other concerns. It's what C.S. Lewis called Christianity and. Christianity and the war. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and animal rights. It's always at Christianity and. So it's justification and. You can't just talk about justification. It has to be justification and justice. Justification and righting the wrongs in society. Justification and 
a woman's right to choose, justification. and Can't the doctrine have value because it has something to do with God rescuing us from everlasting punishment? No, it's only important if we can somehow link it to something really important that we value. Dorothy Soule said, The notion of Christ's righteousness being imputed to sinners as sinners destroys the ethical core of personality, namely responsibility. That typical criticism from our Roman Catholic friends comes from no less than a leader in the Lutheran Church in Sweden. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And within a therapeutic outlook, you have to realize that you may still use, or or we may still use the same terms, but they don't mean the same thing. Usually we don't even hear the words. I'm talking about just in broad evangelicalism today. Often you don't even hear the words. But when you hear the words, they don't mean the same thing that we have meant in the past that we think the Bible means by using those terms. For example, sin, in a therapeutic worldview, sin means dysfunction. It's not a condition. It's not that I am a sinner, I am sinful, and there is no objective standard to tell me what sin is in the first place. It's my inner law, not an external judgment, that tells me that I'm in this condition. Everything is inside. In a therapeutic worldview, everything is in me. It's all indoors. All my authority, all my beliefs, everything that I talk about is about me and my insides. And so if sin is dysfunction, what is redemption? Recovery. Peace with God becomes just a peaceful, easy feeling. I am at peace with myself. How many times do you hear that? Even in the church, Really, well, you, you know, you need to forgive yourself. You need to learn to forgive yourself. Well, no, it's true that we have to believe God's verdict concerning us, but that doesn't mean you need to forgive yourself. It means you need to believe God has really forgiven you. See, in a therapeutic worldview, there is no vertical. There is no arrow coming down from God to us. Rather, it's all horizontal. It's all about us. It's either about me, usually in a therapeutic Outlook. It's not even about my neighbor. It's about my navel. (laughs) It's about me. And you don't really have to deny Christianity in a therapeutic worldview. It just doesn't really matter. It's just not in the picture to talk about justification. If it figures in at all, it becomes a way about talking about inner peace of mind, self-acceptance, social justice, and liberation from norms that haven't been elected by the autonomous self, just freedom in general. Now, evangelical theologians of a more Arminian bent have offered sweeping criticism of the Reformation's doctrine of justification in favor of a gospel that's more centered on the believer's inner experience and transformation than on Christ's saving work. A number of evangelical theologians of that bent have said we need to abandon the Reformation Solas, in favor of our own Arminian pietistic heritage that has always emphasized justification as a process of, of renewal. We hear often mantras like, we need to live the gospel, or we need to be the gospel, or as St. Francis of Assisi said, 
Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. First of all, happily, Francis of Assisi never said that. And the second thing is, Francis of Assisi would never have said that. He would have said a lot. He did say a lot of crazy things, but he never got that crazy. (laughs) Just think about that for a second. How arrogant is that? I'm living the gospel. Wow. That's where you want to push the guy to the side and ask his wife. (laughs) You know? So how does it make you feel that your husband is the gospel? (laughs) Or be the gospel? The good news is that you're not the gospel for me. And I'm not the gospel for you. We are together in all this because we are mutual recipients of the one who lived the law in order to be the gospel. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. And so what would Jesus do? Well, can we talk about what has Jesus done first? (laughs) I could have filled this with volumes, John says at the end of his gospel. I could have filled a library. But... I included the things that you need to know in order to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believing in Him have life in His name. Jesus is the gospel. And by the way, you do need words. (laughs) Your Your life may turn people off to the gospel. It may turn people on. It may bring people to church. It might send them away. But your life will never announce... Jesus paid it all. Your life will not proclaim to people, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your life will not proclaim, he was crucified for our sins and was raised for our justification. You can only proclaim that with words. It is a surprising announcement. It's a memo you have to read to people. You have to announce it. That's why it's called gospel. Good news, not good advice. Not good suggestions, strictly good news. The gospel is not a command. The gospel isn't telling you to do anything. The gospel is telling you what is done. And let me conclude with this to kind of bring it home to all of us, justification in a Facebook world. In, uh, in response to the Black Death in the 14th century, the Church of England called for a month of prayer and fasting. In the 1980s, the Church of England called for more government funding for medical research for AIDS. That just shows you the the chasm that we're talking about between actually believing there's a God there who's sovereign and is in control. Even the maps in the Middle Ages made you look up. And that's why Luther was so terrified. He says, when I was a, a little boy, we used to walk into mass, and as we walked through these doors, Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. They told me, he loves me. Like, he's on my side, he's my savior, he terrifies me, I have nightmares about him at night. But there was a sense of something vertical. It made you look up. The cathedrals made you look up. Everything is pointing upward. Terror, the coming judgment, but at least Martin Luther lived in in a world with people who didn't believe what he taught about the solution, recognizing that there's a real problem. In a lot of ways, the world that the reformers lived in, they were, they were closer 
in their orientation, theological orientation, to their Roman Catholic opponents than they are to us today. They had a shared horizon. There wasn't a low roof placed over the lives of the people as there is today. Now the roof is so low, transcendence has moved indoors. And that fits with moralistic therapeutic deism. Everything is about my inner therapy. I have no idea how many times I've been told or read contemporary theologians and pastors asserting with solemn finality that Luther's question is no longer ours. How can we be justified? It is. It's just we're not asking how can we be justified before God, but how can we be justified before others and ourselves? We can't move on from this question because it's, it's deep in our hearts. Friedrich Nietzsche said, I'm wiping away the upper world to finally authenticate and affirm this world as the real one. We're not going to look up into heaven. We're going to look down and make our world better. And we're going to do whatever we want to do. That I have no purpose for my life is wonderful because now I can make a purpose for myself. And then Nietzsche said, the God who beholds all men's depths and dregs had even crept into my dirtiest corners. On such a witness, I would have revenge or not live myself. The God who beheld everything and also man, that God had to die. Man cannot endure it that such a witness should live. But the price of evading it all is pretty steep, even if only in existential terms. Jean-Paul Sartre said, man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Well, that's just what we believe naturally as Americans. <laughs> man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself and bears the entire responsibility for his existence squarely upon his own shoulders. You're telling me justification doesn't make any sense to people today when this is what they believe? Nietzsche is terrified that, that, yes, we had to kill God because he knows. Jean-Paul Sartre is saying, we bear all of the responsibility for the world on our shoulders. You're telling me that we live in a time when the justification of the wicked doesn't matter? Robert J. Lifton, a psychiatrist and, and pioneer in brain research, observes, quote, the source of many neuroses in society today is a nagging sense of guilt without really knowing its source. The anxiety is a vague but persistent kind of self-condemnation related to the symbolic disharmonies I have described, a sense of having no outlet for his loyalties and no symbolic structure for his achievements. There's no law you can't even measure when you've achieved something. But when has the question, how can I be saved, ever been a common question of the average person, and particularly in our own time and place? I know we all know this, with living in the kind of world we live. You can't even say Facebook anymore. It's, it's Instagram and Snapchat. I know. I know. I knew that. <laughs> but good night. You're telling me that young people today who are constantly checking to see how many likes they have, how many followers they have, what people are saying about them, can't find the doctrine of justification a gigantic relief. The answer to you being so oppressed by what others think of you and how 
the world judges you, you want to get to the place where you don't care about that at all? That doesn't matter at all? Look at the vertical perspective. See how that has been satisfied. See how that has been solved. And you will have all of the self-worth and all of the value and all of the security that you possibly need and what other people say about you. You might, might think about it a little bit, might have a little truth in it, might change a few things here or there, but it no longer can condemn you because if he can't, who then is there who can condemn? If not he, then who can It's never been easy. It's never been the case that people have just automatically believed this doctrine. Nobody assumes the gospel. They they either intentionally hear it and preach it, or they don't know the gospel. And that's been true ever since Jesus upbraided the religious specialists for refusing him because they, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Or when Paul preached the gospel and the Judaizers said, no, it's Christ plus X. Let me conclude this time we have together with a quote from Calvin. Could not put it as well as his lyrical summation. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him, 1 Corinthians 1.13. If we seek any gifts of the Spirit, They will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his virginal conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Amen. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. For more information about supporting our efforts, click on the Donate tab at our website, whitehorseinn.org. If you're new to this program, be sure to sign up for a free membership. When you sign up, you'll get access to the 12 most recent extended-length episodes of The White Horse Sin, along with discussion questions and terms to learn. You can get your free membership just by signing up at whitehorseinn.org forward slash member. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash member.